Where do you want that? Go right ahead. Good morning to you. It is great to be back with you. This time around, we will be journeying through the book of Judges. The book of Judges. Now, Judges is one of those books that preachers sort of tiptoe around. You probably haven't heard it preached a ton. Um, it's kind of a violent book. Uh, all of the heroes in the book of Judges are deeply flawed people. Some are fairly degenerate, if we're honest, and yet God used them to deliver his people. But sadly, God's people would quickly stray away and they would go deeper and deeper and deeper into levels of sin and suffering and subjugation. This is the famous cycles of the book of Judges that happen over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Judges throws a spotlight on how low we can go when each of us does what's right in our own eyes. In fact, that famous verse is from the book of Judges. It is a book about what happens when we do what is right in our own eyes. And friends, there's a lot to be learned from the book of Judges in our postmodern, post-Christian age. Uh, we live in challenging days. Sin that used to sort of hide down back alleys under the cover of darkness now sort of struts down Main Street in broad daylight. Um, we, much like the people in the book of Judges, kind of lack true heroes in our age. Um, the cultural icons of our day seldom embody humility, much less morality, right? Think of who's uh, famous and, uh, and looked after. We live in a day where I think many can say that, that Wrong is celebrated and right is castigated. And so far have we fallen that in some circles, simply sharing the love of Christ is considered hate speech to the other party. And so it begs the question, and that's the title of our sermon, how did it come to this? How did it come to this? So if you would turn with me in the word of God to the Old Testament as we endeavor to discover how did it come to this. As we turn in the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that word and ask him to bless our time together in his text. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for generators. We are grateful for your grace in our life. And as we have this cholera epidemic here in Zimbabwe, we pray that it might be quickly contained. Lord, we're beginning a journey that will stretch over the next several months, take us even a whole year, as I'm only here once a month, and there are 12 units of messages within the book of Judges. So we pray that I might get a visa here in the next two weeks, or it'll be hard to continue the study. <laughs> the commute will be rough. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us through the book of Judges and that we would see today practical takeaways, that there would be at least one practical takeaway that your Holy Spirit speaks to every person who's present with us today and those who will be tuning in from around the world later. 
We pray, Lord, that your word would go far and deep, and most of all, it would go in us powerfully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the book of Judges proceeds, is preceded, I should say, by the book of Joshua. And we spent our time together going through Joshua, so in case uh, the last six months of me being away has caused the fog of where we were to, to settle in, the book of Joshua was sort of a bright spot in the history of the Israelites. In many ways, Joshua was a super positive book. After 400 years of bondage in Egypt and 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, uh, because of their forefathers' faithfulness, uh, faithlessness, the Israelites, they put their trust in the Lord in the days of Joshua. And they faced down the giants before them that their forefathers refused to even try to fight. And then there's a period of seven years where all 12 tribes fought together. They, they subordinated their agenda and put first God's agenda, and they were able to do amazing things as a united people of God. You remember in the book of Joshua, by faith, they crossed the Jordan River, though it was at full flood stage and would have been utterly impossible without the hand of God. By faith, the walls of Jericho came down. And they did it not with siege ramps and battering rams. They did it with trumpets and a shout and the power of the Lord. By faith, the sun stood still as the southern confederacy of Canaanite kings were defeated after an all-night Israelite uphill march to save the Gibeonites. By faith, the northern alliance, and that was the, the Amorites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Berezites and the Jebusites, they were defeated and by faith, the Holy Land was allocated. This is your peace. This is your peace. This is your peace to all of the 12 tribes. And the book of Joshua, if you remember, it ended with a covenant whereby the people of God pledged to God that they will be faithful to God. And Joshua, I think, was a little unsure that they were going to keep their word. So at the very end of his life, as he was near his deathbed, he called a, another convocation, urging the people, choose this day whom you will serve. And he said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So that's the background after 440 years of waiting and, and some 40 years of, of conflict and consolidation, you would expect that the next book of the Bible would be how a faithful generation that toiled mightily in unity under great adversity and God blessed with wonderful victory, well, they would settle down and they would eat the fruit of their obedience. We would expect Judges to be a book of blessing and peace and prosperity. But the Bible is not a fairy tale. And in a fallen world filled with fallen people, everything doesn't always have a happily ever after ending. And so the Bible tells us the unblushing truth and the truth is that God's people, as we would have sang, but we did say, God's people are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And that was true for them, and if we're not very careful, it will be true for us. And so even though militarily all that was left in the days of Judges were, were mop-up operations, all each tribe had to do was wipe out the small pockets of resistance that were remaining in their inheritance. That was it. The back of the enemy was broken. The great kings were defeated. The great armies were defeated. But there were these still little pockets of resistance they needed to trust the Lord for. 
Here's the problem. It's going to bring us to point point one today. How did it come to this? The problem is God's people compromised. And so point one today is this, that compromise leads to consequences. When you look around and go, how did it come to this? The answer is that compromise leads to consequences. You see, God had commanded that the Israelites eradicate the Canaanites. Specifically because the sin of the Amorites, the sin of the Canaanites, had reached full measure. You see, God had given the Canaanites 440 years to repent of their abominable mixture of sexual immorality and infanticide. That's what they did, remember? They were a particularly wicked people. And God waited 440 years from the time He said, Hey, wait, and then you can remove them. They didn't repent. And so what we see is the God who is slow to anger is not impossible to anger. And people forget that. The God who is slow to anger is not impossible to anger. And so the time had come where just as we sung, the trampling out of the vintage where the grapes of wrath is stored, he loosed his faithful lightning and his terrible swift sword. God's judgment for the Amorites in the days of Joshua was marching And they lost much of what they had held. So you would think the Israelites would learn a lesson. But instead of honoring the Lord by obeying his command, eradicate these wicked people, God's people wanted to honor themselves and not the Lord. They wanted to be like the pagans instead of like God's people. And so look at uh, at Joshua uh, 1.1. Excuse me, at Judges 1.1. Apologies for that. Judges 1.1. The Bible says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given them into their hands. So the Lord was willing to give them all this land. Verse 3, though. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites and their brothers, Come up with us into the territory allotted us to fight against the Canaanites, and we in turn will go with you into yours. So this looks pretty good. God's offered to come with them. They're banding together a couple tribes. And so the Simeonites went with them. And when Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. And it was there that they found this king, Adoni Bezek, And they fought against him, and they put it to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And the king fled, verse 6. Adoni Bezek fled, and they chased him, and they caught him. And what were they supposed to do? Kill him. What'd they do? Nope. Listen to what they did. They chased him, and they caught him, and they cut off his his thumbs and his big toes. That's what they did. Verse 7. And Adoni Bezek, that king, said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my royal table. And now God has paid me back for what I did to them. And they brought this maimed king, no toes, no thumbs, back to Jerusalem, and he died there. God said eradicate. God's people chose to humiliate. It was a pagan practice. It was what the Amorites did to cut off foreign conquered kings' toes and thumbs. Why? Because it made them unable to run in battle 
and to hold a sword in combat. But it kept them around so you could mock them and show them just how much better you were than they are. And so these mutilated, humiliated, deposed foes would then be made into a macabre spectacle. They would be underneath the king's table and they would have to beg for scraps. So the king, the pagan king, would have a party and the, the entertainment would be the former foe groveling, can I just, can I just have a little bit or I'm going to starve? And God's people weren't supposed to be like that. And they quickly became exactly like that. God's people wanted to be esteemed in the eyes of men, and so they adopted the ungodly practices of their pagan neighbors, maiming and shaming the conquered kings. So Israel's first compromise came right away and without delay, and it came in the area of self-centered pride. Look at us. We can do this. And the second came in the area of self-centered indulgence. God had commanded the Israelites to eradicate the enemy, but each tribe was content to merely subjugate the enemy. Look again at Judges 1.27. The Bible says, But Manasseh, that's one of the tribes, did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Iblium or Megiddo or all those other hard names you're glad you didn't have to say, and the surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. So Manasseh didn't do it. Verse 28, when Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. So they subjugated them. They made them slaves, but they didn't eradicate them, which is what God said. I go to verse 29. Here's another tribe. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Verse 30, neither did Zebulon, another tribe, drive out the Canaanites living in Kitcheron or Nahal. And they remained among them, but they did not conquer them, they subjected them to forced labor. You're seeing a theme. God said eradicate. God's people said we'll just subjugate. Verse 31, nor did the tribe of Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Alab or Akzib or Helba or Aphek or Rahab. Because of this, the people of Asher lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land. Verse 33, here's another tribe. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath. But the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land and those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath. And they became forced laborers. What are you seeing? The tribes refused to eradicate, but they're happy to subjugate. Verse 34, the Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country. This is the bad guys confining the good guys to the bad land. The valleys were the good land. Not allowing them to come to the plain. My friend, the plain is where there's grain. And on the hill is where there's not. Verse 35. And the Amorites were determined to hold out in Mount Heres and Aijalon and, and Shalabim. And, but when the power of the house of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. What do we see? We see time and time again, tribe after tribe after tribe would not dislodge the Canaanites, but they would subjugate the Canaanites into forced labor. Why did the tribes not take the totality of their territory? Why were they relegated to bits and pieces of the land God had provided? The question has to come, was God unable to give them victory? What do you think the answer to that is? No. 
God is perfectly able. God had parted the Red Sea. God had washed away the greatest superpower of that day, Pharaonic Egypt. But now, God's power was somehow insufficient to dislodge the Canaanites because they had iron chariots and God's not big enough to take out iron chariots? No. My friends, if you're strong enough to enslave a people, you're strong enough to eradicate a people. So why did Israel not take possession of all the land? Because God's people were too lazy to face down the iron chariots they were facing. God's people were content to live on the margins of God's bounty. Now, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun, so it begs the question for you and I. How many of us are content to abandon God's best because we'd rather do what's easiest? Instead of fighting the good fight and seeing the victory over sin that easily entangles, we're quite content to let sin be our master. But you need to make no mistake, compromise always brings consequences. Look again at Judges chapter 2, Judges chapter 2 and verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you into the land I swore to give you and your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet, what does the Lord say? You have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And then there's a consequence. Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. You see, God cannot be mocked. We reap what we sow. If you put in strawberries, you get strawberries. If you put in mealies, you get mealies. <laughs> but if you put in mealies, you don't get strawberries. The God of nature is the God of Scripture. And this is how he's made the world work. And so Israel didn't want to be bothered with the heavy lifting required to clear the valley of the iron chariots they faced. And so the lush valley and all of its great bounty was not available for them to enjoy. My friend, what is the thing that God is nudging you to do? And, and, and are you willing to be like Isaiah and respond, Here I am, Lord. Send me to do that. I'll do it, Lord. Here I am. Or will you be like another biblical character, Saul, who, who sat cowering before Goliath's taunts, refusing to even put on his armor? I don't know if you remember in, in that story, but, but, but a sling and five smooth stones was all God used to defeat that mighty Goliath. But someone had to have the faith to trust in the name of the Lord. Until that someone showed up, Goliath and his taunts were all the army heard. Friends, if you read the Bible, there's always going to be giants that the people of God face. There's always some Goliath. There's always going to be imposing walls like Jericho. There's always going to be iron chariots blocking God's bountiful blessing. The question is, are we content to live off kingdom crusts as we cower in the corner instead of taking and enjoying the lush valleys waiting for those who will trust in the Lord with all their hearts and all their mind and all their soul and all their strength? So point one, if compromise always leads to 
consequences. So too it is true, point two today, neglect always leads to regret. Neglect always leads to regret. What happened when we put God on the back burner? And the answer is in scripture, neglect always leads to regret. And again, the God of nature, and it's the God of scripture. If you neglect a campfire, what's going to happen? One of two things is going to happen. Either it will outgrow its safe confines and cause great damage to the forest next to it. Don't pay attention to your campfire and a spark goes up and suddenly the bush goes up. Or more than likely, the fire will simply peter out because no one kept its embers hot and going. And so it just ceases to provide warmth and illumination to the people that needed it. Our spiritual life is a lot like that. If you don't tend to it, it will start to grow cold. Hebrews 3.12 urges us, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And so the Bible's saying you need to cultivate your spiritual life daily. We must be in the Word daily. We must seek out other Christians and encourage each other daily because if we're not careful, sin will harden our heart and we'll sort of wander away and grow cold. And that's what we have happening in Judges 2. This is exactly the deceitfulness of sin sets in Judges 2 and verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel each went to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at 110 years of age. And they buried him within the boundaries of the inheritance in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their forefathers. And here's what changed. Verse 10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So here's this one generation, super faithful. And the very next generation doesn't even know about the Lord. How did Joshua's faithful generation, who walked with God for approximately 50 years, raise a generation who didn't know the Lord or the work the Lord had done for his people? And the answer is that faith is not transferred by osmosis. You know what osmosis is? You put something next to something and it sucks it up and it takes it, right? Christianity doesn't work like that. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean your kids are going to be Christians. Or your neighbor is going to be a Christian. Or even your spouse is going to be a Christian. If you love the Lord, that does not mean that your kids automatically will. God commanded his people in Deuteronomy 11 and verse 18, You shall therefore lay upon these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. You shall teach them to your children, talking to them when you are sitting in your house, and when you're walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. That is, in the totality of your life, whatever you're doing, wherever you're going, fishing at Kariba, sitting in traffic, dealing with Zimra. Tell your kids about Jesus then. Then. Not just Sundays and emergencies and Christmas and Grandma's house. Then, when you're doing normal stuff, tell them about the Lord. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so the question becomes for the Christian, 
Do your children and grandchildren know you love the Lord? (laughs) Or is that some personal thing that you don't want to sort of burden them with? Do you read the Bible to these children and grandchildren? Do you pray with them? Is being at God's house a priority or sort of an afterthought in your family? Barna Research Group, which is a Christian group, did a lot of work before COVID, and they noted that regular church attenders in America, where I'm from, after vacations, after work conflicts, after visiting relatives, after all their kids' sporting events, that that regular church attenders were attending church roughly twice a month. Now, that was before COVID. I dare say, for many, that might be an optimistic assessment. Twice a month in the house of God. And, and this is something we need to be very prayerful in considering. Our kids will notice what we prioritize. They will. They will notice. If you have a favorite rugby team, there's a good chance your kids have that favorite rugby team. Monkey see, monkey do, right? What you prioritize, your kids and grandkids will understand that's what you value. And if you prioritize sports or recreation or whatever, that may be what they prioritize. Is it what you want them prioritizing? Because if, you, if, if Jesus is what you want to live for, then, then, then they will likely also find that's what they want to live for. Now, if you're reading through the book of Judges, we've gone from chapter 1 to chapter 2, you're going to notice that the chapters start picking up some steam. What started with simple compromise and consequences is now neglect that leads to regret, and that's going to metastasize. This cancer is going to go deep. It goes into out-and-out rejection of the Lord. Compromise, consequences, neglect, regret, and now we're going to get out-and-out rejection. That brings us to point three today. Rejection leads to God's wrath. So the Bible teaches rejection leads to God's wrath. We see this in chapter 2 and verse 12. Chapter 2 and verse 12, that rejection leads to God's wrath. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples that were around them and bowed down to them. And what does the Bible say? And they provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord, and they served the Baals and Ashtaroth. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And wherever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned, and the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. You see, God was willing to walk with them. God was willing to work with them. But God's people compromised, and so they missed out on God's best. And then they neglected to pass on their faith, so their kids now didn't know the Lord. And here's the thing. The human heart was created by God to worship. It was created to worship God. And if we will not worship the one true God, the human heart will find a lesser substitute to worship. You are made to worship. And so the Israelites, poorly discipled children, they adopted the the, the idols of the culture that was around them. And they literally bowed down to Baal and to Ashereth, the very gods that were supposed to be eradicated. And there's a lesson here. If you're a grandma, if you're a grandpa, if you're a dad, if you're a mom, if you don't have a vibrant faith in Jesus, if you don't intentionally disciple your loved ones in Jesus, in that vibrant faith for Jesus, there's a really good chance they're going to grow up and not have a, a vibrant faith in Jesus because we reap what we sow 
And if they don't have a vibrant faith in Jesus, they will start to worship something else. And they'll generally gravitate to the idols of the culture around them. And there's a truth that Christianity is more caught than taught. When you see someone walking with Jesus, you're moved to be like those people. We don't see enough people walking with Jesus, do we? If you want to raise prayer warriors, you need to start praying with your kids and grandkids and teach them how to be prayer warriors. Uh, Christians increasingly lament uh, the, the tide of immorality they see around them in our society. But do you know how to reverse that? It's not by legislation. It's not by consternation. It's not by castigation. It's by Christians being salt and light in a dark night. That's how you reverse the slide in the culture. By you and I praying fervently, by you and I sharing Christ frequently, by us walking with God intentionally and passionately and consistently, that's how you make a difference in a dark world. So, a little depressing at this point. We've got the bad news. Good news is coming. We're a people of good news, okay? So, so the bad news is, how did we get here? We got here by compromise. We got here by neglect. And then we got here by outright rejection. Now, let's look at chapter 2 and verse 16. And you're going to shift to the good news. Because we have a God of hope, even when things seem hopeless. So in chapter 2 and verse 16, we see point 4 today. And point 4 is this. God is faithful, even when we are not. That's a really comforting truth that God is faithful even if we are not. Look at Judges 2.16. And then the Lord, after you've been provoked and forgotten, and then the Lord raised up judges. And that's because we're in the book of Judges. And all the way through the book of Judges, there's going to be these people that who raises up? The Lord. Now, it's plural. What does that mean? It means that Israel is going to do this again and again and again. And God's going to be gracious again and again and again. The Lord raised up judges, plural, who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. And yet they didn't listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of that judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Israel was sinful. Their compromise and neglect brought on God's discipline, got their attention. But friends, God was faithful even when God's people were not faithful. God saw their distress. He was moved with compassion, the Bible says. And so he raised up a deliverer, a judge, to save them. And that is the cycle of the book of Judges. In, this, in the book of Judges, God blesses his people. Israel gets complacent. Then it gets neglectful. Then it gets sinful. Then they get paddled. And then they cry out. And God answers. And then after God delivers them, they very quickly get complacent, neglectful, rejectful, throttled. They cry out. And this happens all the way through the book of Judges. And Judges is roughly a 332-year period of God's people. God sees their straying. He sees their hand of blessing. So the enemy takes ground that God would not normally let the enemy have. Eventually, the pain gets too terrible, 
And so God's people cry out to the only place they know to go, which is back to God. And God hears and God cares and God answers because God is faithful even to a people who aren't faithful to him. We see this in the very first judge of the book of Judges. It's a man named Othniel. Othniel. So turn to Judges 3 and verse 7 and we meet Othniel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. They served the Baals and Ashtoreth. And therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of a certain guy, Cushan Rishayatham. I don't think that name is making a comeback. King of Mesopotamia. And, and the people of Israel served this guy for eight years. Eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, a man named Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel, and Othniel judged Israel, and Othniel went out to war, and the Lord gave that king of Mesopotamia into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rishathium, and so the land had rest for 40 years. And then that dude died. God's unfaithful people cried out to God and God responded faithfully. God raised up a deliverer. God put a spirit in him. God raised up a judge to deliver them. But eventually that godly leader passes on. He moves on. And sadly, the Israelites, they would abandon the Lord. And this whole sordid cycle would happen again and again. However, as you read the book of Judges, the more you cycle, it doesn't just go like this. It cycles downward. It spirals. That is, the sin gets worse and worse, and the situation gets worse and worse. Each time they abandoned God, they went deeper and deeper into the sinful culture around them. And that brings us to the last question today. How do we stay the course? How do we stay the course and not end up in this situation? We've answered the question, how did it come to this? It came to this by compromise that led to neglect and neglect that led to rejection. We've answered the question, how do we get out of this? We get out of this by crying out to the Lord who's compassionate and faithful, even when we aren't faithful and he can save us. But the question now is, how do we stay the course? How do we keep out of this quicksand that will bring us down again and again and again if we're not careful? And that brings us to our last point. The last point's a little bit surprising. And the point is this, God tests us. God tests us. And we see this if you go to Judges 2, starting at verse 20. Judges 2, starting at verse 20. Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to what? To test them. God tests his people. He says it elsewhere in scripture as well. In order to test Israel by them, by the bad guy. The bad guy is going to test you. What do you do with the bad guy? Do you become the bad guy? Do you become like the bad guy? Do you worship the bad guy? Or do you return to me? In order to test Israel by them, whether or not they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And so the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly. He did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So the Bible teaches that God puts us in situations where we have the opportunity to be faithful or unfaithful. That's what a test is, right? God doesn't do this to hurt us. He does it to help us. 
Judges 2 and 3 gives us at least two reasons why God tests us. The first we see in Judges 2.22, but it's also mentioned in Judges chapter 3 and verse 4. And that's letter A today under that point. Letter A is God tests us to reveal our hearts. Why does God test us? Well, one of the reasons, according to the Bible, is God tests us to reveal our hearts. We see this in chapter 3. Now, these are the nations the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generation of the people of Israel might know war to teach those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon and Mount Baal Hermon and as far as Labo Hamath. Now look at verse 4. They were for testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the command of the Lord which he commanded their forefathers by the hand of Moses. And so the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to those pagans as sons, and they served their pagan gods. Now here's the thing. Here's the test. God is tested. Who's the test for? Do you think it's for God? If God is omniscient, that means he's omni, all, and omniscient, gnosis, knowing, he's all Knowing. So is the test for God? Can't be for God. God already knows our hearts. The test, my friends, is for us because we always think that we're good little boys and girls, right? <laughs> right? I'm really good at math. Here's your F. Maybe you're not as good as I thought, right? Maybe you should do art for your A-levels because maths, it doesn't add up. You can't add, right? And, 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 and so the test is for us. God cannot learn anything. Abraham only knew that God was truly first in his life when God asked him, Hey, why don't you slay your son of promise, the one you love, the one that's special, the only one you have. And Abraham had to make a decision. And he passed his test. But you know what? God already knew Abraham's heart. You know who didn't know Abraham's heart? Abraham. He figured it out when the test came. If God tests us, and the Bible says he does, what are you supposed to do with a test? Pass it. Do you know what a teacher does if you don't pass a test? You get to retake the test. A master teacher, and Jesus is the master teacher, is so committed to you following him that he will give you the same test over and over and over and over and over and over until you pass that test. And then there's a new test and a new subject. And you'll grow in that one. But my friend, there are some Christians that keep failing the same test, and they never grow. God is so committed to conforming us to the image of Christ that he graciously permits opportunities to stray, to come our way, so we can make a choice. Do we say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, or do we prostitute ourselves to the idols before us? Now, prostitute is not good church language, right? Don't you mean... They made a mistake. I made a mistake and I didn't follow God. I did a whoopsie. Hmm? Prostituted is the right language. As the church, we are Jesus' bride. And he is to be our first love. And we are not to run after other lovers. I want you to go back to Judges chapter 2 and verse 16 and look at the language the Holy Spirit of the Holy God says about when we stray. 
Judges 2.16, And the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to the judges, for they... Tough word. They whored after other gods and they bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. If you think of marriage and the devastation that infidelity brings to the equation, um, God is saying, look, your sin is not just a mistake. It's more than a whoopsie. It is a decision to abandon the God who loves you, to say, I know God wants this and I'm going to do that, and I don't care how God feels about that. So God's going to test us to reveal our hearts to us. My advice is let's be a people that pass those tests. A people that loves the Lord with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. Now, there's a second reason in our passage why God tests us. The second reason is God tests us to prepare us to be who we need to be. The test reveals where we stand, but it also, the test prepares us for who we need to be. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test them, that is, in all Israel who had not experienced the wars in Canaan. So the next generation hadn't fought great wars. Verse 2, it was only in order to teach that generation of people of Israel that they might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. God knew, hey, I'm putting my people in a land that's hostile. And one of the things they're going to need to be able to do is repel invasion. And to do that, you need some warriors. And so if there are no foes in any way, shape, or form, we're not going to have much of an army. We're going to have an army that can march and look pretty on parade day. But an army that gets thwacked when somebody shows up firing live ammunition in your direction. right? So God knew as a nation Israel would face external threats. And so he left some pockets of resistance so it would teach subsequent generations the art of war. God permits testing to prepare us for who we need to be and what we need to do. And James says this in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, same word as tests, of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness is going to have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. God tests us to help us. God permitted this in the life of his one and only son. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in... In all points. But you know what Jesus did that's different from you and I? He passed every test. Jesus was tempted in all points and yet he never sinned. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus was repeatedly tested by protracted suffering. Hebrews 2.10. For it's fitting that Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist and bring many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. My friends, in times of testing, it is not fun, correct? But God uses times of testing to refine our character. The refiner's fire purges out impurities. If you want to make a strong sword that's good for combat, you had to heat it and beat it until its shape is straight, until its blade is strong and it's fully sharp. God isn't hurting you by testing you. He's revealing to you how you're doing spiritually. So how you do? You retaking the same test? Do better. And when you have a test that you think is too big for you, 
you need to remember that his divine power is capable to help you pass that test. Do you believe that? If he's testing you, he's testing you so you succeed. If you're failing, you're failing to lean in to the one who can give you that ability to succeed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's a hot day, and we're in a hard book. And we're in the beginning of that book, and we're just beginning the cycle of Judges. And we had to review all the goodies of Joshua, and now we're seeing all the baddies in Judges. And it is surprising that your people are straying, and it is disheartening. But Lord, it's true, and we know it in our own life. And so Lord, please help us as you hand us tests to realize that we need to pass those tests. And that uh, through testing, you make us the vessels you want us to be. You develop the character in us you want us to have. Um, Sometimes through these hard things, you develop the prayer life in us that we wouldn't otherwise have. If life is easy, we'd be fat, dumb, and happy. But life is hard, and so we become holy and prayerful, and we dig deeper in the Word, and we hide ourselves in you. And that's a good thing, but it's not always a fun thing. So I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would be intentional, that we would be the kind of people that make disciples, that our children and grandchildren and neighbors and co-workers would know that we love Jesus and they would want to love the Jesus that we know. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks very much, Sean. Um, There's a lot to take away there. And uh, let us all be humble enough to realize that we are all prone to wonder. Because the tests come at us, we wish they had our children to try and pass so they don't have to go through again. Let's stand to sing the doxology. It's number 460 in your white books. Uh, Short reverse, we'll sing it through Christ, number 460.